evening. Am I loud enough for everyone to hear me? I think that might have helped right there. It's a pleasure to be here with you all once again. And for those of you who may not know me, there might be a small chance of that. My name is Christian Watkins. I was born and raised in Cleveland, Tennessee to Roger and Debbie Watkins, who are born-again believers and raised us in a very God-fearing home. They made sure of it that we were in church every time the doors were open. I was raised in Cleveland, Tennessee the whole time. Um, didn't leave Cleveland until I came to Louisville at age 17. Start my journey at Boyce College. It was at age 13 that I became a believer in Jesus. And my dad took me to a revival at a church called Philippi Baptist Church. It was there that a traveling uh, evangelist uh, named Rick Corum preached a sermon on hell. And that's what it took uh, to convert me to belief in Jesus Christ. You can see that I literally had the hell scared out of me that night. Um, but no, it, just, it took a sermon on hell for me to realize just how foolish and destructive, self-destructive, my own attempts at self-righteousness would be. It's also, during that sermon, still how beautiful Jesus Christ is and how beautiful the gospel is of salvation in Jesus on my behalf. And how I'll hit all the righteousness that I need in him. So that's how I became converted. And then at age 16, whenever I started feeling the call to ministry. And I developed a love for the priest's word of God at this point in time. Um, I had developed a concern for the, the health of the church at this point in time as well. I was raised in very unhealthy churches, unfortunately. Um, I knew they were bad. I just didn't realize how bad they were. Sorry, guys. It's the beard that does that. The last time I preached, it was even you know thicker down to here, and it hit against it the whole time. I think I might have fixed it on that one. Sorry about that. Um, Anyhow, I was just saying, it was during this time I felt the call to ministry. Uh-oh. Can you hear me now? Good. Yeah, it was during that time that I felt a call to ministry. Um, I, I fought against it at the start. I was one of those guys like Moses who kept giving God reasons why I shouldn't be called to ministry, why I wasn't competent to be a minister. And with time, God just showed me that all those reasons were illegitimate. I just talk really loudly. Can you hear me? All right. Let's just do that then. In the future, whenever I come to preach here, I'll just shave off the beard. <laughs> and then you'll think you'll have a 15-year-old preaching to you. All right. So you can hear me now. Good. That's better. All right, so now we got that. Um, Anyhow, the final revelation of my being called to ministry came as I had dreams of me preaching at night um, to churches. And I had never had dreams like that before. It just came to my realization, okay, maybe God is wanting me to be the person to lead churches towards health. Maybe God is wanting me to be the person who not only loves the word, but also preaches it as well. So I relented to the call, and I came to Boyce College, where I met people like Cease of Faith, and even more importantly, Dr. Payne. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I love you, Cesa. I love you. <laughs> and it was um, after marriage um, that God sent us here to Fisherville. And it was probably the greatest blessing that we've had in terms of church life. Um, this is my favorite church I've ever been a part of. Dr. Payne is my favorite pastor I've ever sat under. Um, there's, this is just a unique place. Like There's so much grace um, that God has bestowed here and that you show to others here. And there's so much love that you have for other people. 
And of course, you have one of the best expositors in the country, if not in the whole entire world, um, in your church. So you have a gift here. Um, so thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, so tonight, I am going to be preaching to you, actually, from Philippians chapter 1. And the sermon might sound a little sappy from the start, but you're going to learn why whenever we read the text. Um, the text begins with a thanksgiving and a prayer for the church at Philippi. So I'm going to begin my sermon actually putting what Paul does to practice. I'm going to be showing a thanksgiving towards you, the church at Fisherville. So Brian, I just want to thank you, first of all, for preaching faithfully to us week in and week out for the year and a half that we were here close to two years. Um, your ministry was a blessing to us even after we left, because in a city where we really haven't heard great preaching, um, we've listened to your sermons from afar, and it's, it's blessed us, it's ministered to us. Thank you to Jonathan and to all the sound crew who actually records these sermons. I know it can seem like menial work, but you are a blessing to those who cannot be here. And I want to thank you to all of you who helped us move um, by coming to our apartment and shoving a whole bunch of stuff into an overstuffed trailer and then taking stuff out of that overstuffed trailer and moving into another moving van in the parking lot of Kroger so we wouldn't you know, have a flat tire and cause the trailer to cause another wreck. So thank you for doing that for us. And Meisner's, thank you for housing us these last few months that we got to enjoy here at Fisherville. We made our transition so much smoother than, than it otherwise would have been. And lastly, I want to say thank you to the small group. It includes the, the Singletons and the Riedels and I don't see Christian in them tonight, but yeah, just thank you for meeting with us every week to restore our joy, to live with us, to laugh with us, to, to learn with us. It's a great blessing. And then um, thank you to the senior men who let me teach you for a little over a year. I've never had a greater audience than what I had in you. Um, you learned so much, I hope, <laughs> under me, but I learned even more under you. Um, you taught me how to really put the talk to the walk, and I really appreciated that. I've never had a better audience than what I had in you at Sunday school, so thank you. In choir, we thank you um, for allowing us to come here, because it was actually CISO being offered the pianist position here that brought us to Fishville to begin with. And I can say that she loved every week that she got to play for you guys. You were always so appreciative and so joyful and so loving. And you're also very talented, and that helps a lot when you're a pianist. Um, to, to accompany talented people. So thank you, Fisherville Baptist Church. Um, we love you. We love you very much. And we miss you. <laughs> we wish that all churches could be like you. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. All right, so like I said, tonight's text is Philippians 1. And Paul begins Philippians 1 with an extended opening of thanksgiving and prayer for the Philippians. Okay, so like I said, I wanted to put his, his model to practice because it felt appropriate, but also right in light of everything that you've done for us. So whenever I was thinking about what I could actually preach on, um, I was overwhelmed with gratitude for you guys. So it just made sense to, to preach a sermon that was actually a thanksgiving to you and is a prayer for you. So that's why I'm preaching um, this text tonight. And if you are a person who likes to take notes and you like to write down the titles of sermons, you can write down a thanksgiving and prayer for the church at Fisherville. A thanksgiving and prayer for the church at Fisherville. All right, so I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to walk through the text. 
hopefully making through all of it. So here we go. First Timothy chapter, no, sorry, first Timothy, Philippians chapter one. Um, I'm a little bit sick tonight, so my mind isn't working as clearly as it could and my throat isn't as good as it could be either. So pray for me. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. God, we thank you for this night. Um, We thank you that we have life and breath. We thank you that we get to come here and worship together as brothers and sisters in Jesus. We thank you that we have the Bible translated into our own tongue, that we can read it anytime we want, and that we can preach it with freedom. God, it is a great blessing to us all. I ask tonight that you would help me to preach this sermon faithfully, um, that I would be clear I'll be correct with everything I say, and I'll be enjoyable as well for this audience. I pray that we would all be encouraged, that we would all be moved further along in our Christian walk. In the name of Jesus, I do pray. Amen. Okay. So what is the first thing that you typically do whenever you get a letter? You found out who it came from, right? In fact, I can think of a song from my childhood that betrays this reality, and it comes from the greatness that is Blue's Clues. So if you know this song, sing along with me. We just got a letter, we just got a letter, we just got a letter, I wonder who it's from. There we go. So even as a child, right, we have it ingrained into us that whenever you get a letter, the first thing you do is find out who it came from. Okay, the first century is no exception to this, okay? Whenever they got a letter, their first major point of concern is, okay, who is this coming from? Okay, and that's exactly what Paul is going to do here. So Paul begins this letter, just like he does with all the other ones, letting them know that it comes from him, okay? And this is a big deal, okay? Why do I say that? Because Paul is an apostle, and apostles were second in command to Jesus at the founding of the church. Boy, they were the first major leaders of the church, spreading the gospel and planting churches in areas where it wasn't at before. So by beginning this letter with his name, he lets them know that what he says comes 
with apostolic authority straight from Christ. Now, there's a certain weight to that, right? I mean, if you get a letter from Carl or a letter from Brian, Brian's is going to have a little bit more weight to it, right, because of his role here in the church. And they're both going to have wonderful things to say. They're both going to be very encouraging. But Brian's going to have a heavier weight to it because he's your pastor, right? So the first century church was, was aware of this as well, that if something comes from an apostle, that has a greater weight to it. Okay, the apostle was writing to us. So the first thing we're going to see in this letter is matters of authorship. So the text says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So like I said, this letter obviously comes from Paul. But Timothy's name is also mentioned here. Now, he could have been Paul's typist, so to speak, because it is believed that Paul may have had a vision problem. Or he could have been a witness of what Paul is writing in this letter. It's like he's a, a further confirmation that what is being said here is true. Okay. Either way, with Paul's name down, that means authority. But what's interesting here is that he doesn't explicitly refer to his authority. He doesn't explicitly refer to his apostolicity like he does in other letters. Instead, he and Timothy make explicit reference to them being servants, servants of Christ Jesus. And servant here could also be translated as slave, but without this negative connotation behind it. Rather, Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians, and we know, that he and Timothy are doing and saying exactly what Jesus wants them to say and do. So because Jesus is the head of the church who died and raised and ascended for the church, there's a certain authority to that, right? If you're a servant of Christ Jesus. The servant also has this idea of laboring on behalf of another, of putting your life down to serve another, right? So not only are they serving on behalf of Christ, but they are serving for the benefit of the Philippians. So it's just an encouraging first thing to see whenever you read a letter, right? If you were to receive something like that, it would be encouraging to you. That's what it does here for the Philippians. So after we find out who a letter is from, what do we tend to do next? We try to figure out who in our household it is for, right? Right. Whether it's, in our case, in our home, it's we get stuff from my, for my brother's names even. So you have Roger and Debbie, my parents. Sometimes stuff comes for us. Sometimes it comes from Corey. Sometimes it goes for Caleb. Sometimes it goes for Cody. That's a lot of C's. I know my parents want to get the whole C thing in there. Right? So this is exactly the same reality for the first century people. After they know who the letter comes from, they want to know, okay, who explicitly is this for? Is this for me or is this for some other guy inside the church, right? So the next thing we're going to learn about here is the audience. And Paul writes, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So Paul clarifies his audience here. It is the saints who are in Philippi, or the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Well, let me be clear here. Saints is referring to all believers in Jesus. It's not referring to some kind of extra holy Christian or some kind of miraculous martyr, okay? This is all those who are just believers in Jesus, who acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior of the world. And Philippi is, a, is, of course, a city in Macedonia, in the northern part of Macedonia. So notice here also, though, that Paul makes explicit reference to the overseers and the deacons. Now, as Brian has faithfully taught you in, in Timothy and in Titus and in Peter, this refers to the two offices of the church. So the word overseers refers to what we typically call pastors. You can also call them elders. They are the leaders of the church. 
the word deacons here refers to what we obviously call deacons. It's a little bit more simple, right? These are the servant leaders of the church. They, they service the needs of the church. Now, before I, I move on, I want to say a few things here. I want you to notice that both overseers and deacons are plural in this text. That is no accident. Okay? We see this pattern here, and we see it elsewhere in the New Testament, that individual churches had multiple pastors slash elders slash overseers. And this is a very good thing, and it's a very needed thing. In Fisherville, since Brian has faithfully um, taught this to you over and over, I would continue this charge of asking that you strongly consider hiring more pastors here at Fisherville to labor with Brian because he needs it and you need it, and it's a good thing, and it's the expectation of the first century church. So, in summary, we have seen here that Paul's audience consists of believers who are at Philippi, along with explicit reference to the leaders of the church, that being the leading overseers and the serving deacons. Now, after we understand who wrote the letter, and after we understand who the letter is for, the next thing that we are used to as 21st century Americans is the body of the letter. That was not the standard format of the first century. It's not Paul's format either. He typically moves into thanksgivings and prayers, sometimes going back and forth between the two before he gets to the body. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this letter next. Paul is going to transition into a benediction here, or a blessing. So let's read verse 2 together. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a very nice blessing, a very nice benediction here. We see a combination of both Christian and Jewish elements. So grace likely refers to that unmerited and undeserved favor from God that we find in Christ Jesus. It's, it's a blessing, right? And peace likely has that Jewish background of shalom here. It's close to the idea of wholeness or holistic wellness, right? So both the grace and the peace here are very good things, right? They're very good things. And they're extra good that Paul wants them to come from God, right? The very creator of the world, the very sovereign of the world, the governor of the world. And he makes that even more explicit by mentioning two members of the Trinity. He says both the Father and the Son, right? So this is honestly the best blessing or the best benediction that you can wish upon another, to wish grace and peace from God to them. That is much more meaningful than good luck. You know, we say good luck all the time to people. It's almost like it's a belief in faith. But at the same time, if you were to go around and say to someone, grace and peace to you, my brother, or grace and peace to you, my sister, that, that might be a little bit off-putting, and it would kind of defeat the whole purpose of the benediction. But either way, this is a very nice, very good, very encouraging blessing or benediction here. And all joking aside, Fisherville, I do wish grace and peace from God to you. And as I said before, your membership is filled with people who have received grace and who show grace to others. You are in a, a place where you have very peaceful meetings. Because I've been in churches where it was not so peaceful. Because in the business meetings, things got chaotic where people who claim to love each other seem to hate each other from across the room, right? That's not happened here, at least in a long while, from my understanding of things. So 
be encouraged that you have received grace and that you have received much peace from God. And it is my prayer that you would receive only more of it. So be encouraged. So we've seen matters of authorship. We've seen the audience. We've seen this nice, lovely benediction or blessing of grace and peace. As I said, after Paul offers benedictions, he typically likes to move into thanksgivings and prayers to the churches that he writes. And he does so here in Philippians. And that's what we're going to see next. The first thing we're going to see is Paul's thanksgiving. And in this thanksgiving, the first major thing that we are going to see is Paul's total joyful thanks for a continual gospel partnership with the Philippians. I'll say that again. We're going to see Paul's total joyful thanks for a continual gospel partnership with the Philippians. So let me read the text here. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, I'm making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul may be just slightly hyperbolic, slightly exaggerational whenever he says he thanks God every time he remembers them. And I say this because for every group of people that you know, you are going to have some unpleasant memories with them, right? It's just human nature that if you're around people long enough, at some point they're going to sin against you. So even though it might be just slightly hyperbolic or slightly exaggerational, the effect of it is very clear, right? He's saying that I am genuinely thankful for you, Philippians, right? And Fisherville, I want you to be encouraged tonight to know that Cisa and I are genuinely thankful for you, for everything that you've done for us in the year and a half or two years that we have known you. Uh, you are a blessing. But similarly, Paul also says here that he joyfully prays for the Philippians. And whenever we pray, sometimes we are joyful and sometimes we are not so joyful, right? Sometimes we're a little bit sorrowful, especially whenever it comes to praying for people. And I can give some examples here. I think we are all joyful that we get to pray for the Coleman family in their time of grief because of who they are and everything that they have done to serve us here and love us here at the church. Even though they're in grief, we are joyful that we get to pray for them. But I think we're all still a little bit sorrowful whenever we pray for Ron Tipton, right? Because of the double life that he lived while he was here among us and the painful memory that we have of his apostasy after he left us, right? So you have this contrast even in our own body of joyful and sorrowful prayers. Well, Paul says here that the Philippians, whenever he prays, they fill him with joy, right? He joyfully prays for them. He's given us some other biblical examples. I can imagine that the Galatians probably calls Paul to have a few sorrowful prayers, right? They were struggling with this false gospel, struggling with the law, and they just had to write to him, like, not even offering a thanksgiving, just going straight into the letter, right? Of how could you fall to another gospel? How? How is this possible, right? That's a sorrowful prayer. But the Philippians here caused Paul to have joyful prayers for them. And Fisherville, I want to encourage you to know that Cisa and I are joyful whenever we pray for you. Uh, because I do try to pray for you. I do get the emails still from every week. It is a joy to pray for you because of the love that we have for you, because of the memories that we have of you. And last, we're, we're going to see here why it is 
that the Philippians have given Paul such cause for thanksgiving and joy whenever he remembers them and prays for them. And it is this. It is gospel partnership. Gospel partnership. From the first day that Paul met them until the time of his writing, he says that the Philippians were partners with him in his ministry. And again, this might be just slightly hyperbolic, slightly exaggerational, but the effect of it is clear, right? The Philippians were continual and consistent partners in the gospel ministry with Paul. And Fisherville, again, Cease and I want to encourage you here that from the first day that we have known you until today, you have been gospel partners with us. You have allowed and even invited Cisa to come here and play the piano for you. You allowed and invited me to teach you in the Sunday school class and in the, the um, oh gosh, what's it called? Whenever vacation Bible school, thank you so much. You allowed me to do that for you and to fill the pulpit for you, Brian. Like, thank you so much for, for entrusting that to us, for giving us an opportunity to minister here. It was a great blessing to us. And more than that, you sent us off to Cleveland, Tennessee in your prayers. And more than that, right now, you are ordaining me to ministry, right? So you are continuing to partner with me in the gospel ministry. Thank you for that. Thank you. I ask that you would continue to partner with me and CISA by praying that the Lord would provide a full-time ministry job to us. We are applying faithfully. We're just waiting on his timing. But praying is always a wonderful thing to do, right? So please pray that the Lord will provide a job with us in Cleveland. So the second major thing that we're going to see here, right? The first thing we've seen here is, is a thanksgiving and a joy for the Philippians. The second major thing we're going to see here is Paul's assurance of God's future completion of the Philippians. And Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the most encouraging things that anyone can possibly hear. Because if you are a Christian, you know that you're a work in progress, right? You know this. Because week in and week out, you're struggling with temptations. You're struggling with sins. You're struggling with your own ignorance. You're struggling with your own errors, right? So to hear this, to hear that there is a day whenever that will be done, whenever that will be complete, that is encouraging, right? That is very good news. So Paul says here, I know what you're going through. I know how hard it is, but trust me, it's going to be done someday. God began a good work in you when you believed in Jesus, and he'll finish that work at the return of Jesus, right? In the meantime, just remember that it is a good work. It's a good struggle. It's a good fight. It's a good labor. And Fisherville, I want to encourage you in the same way. God began a good work in you. He won't put you to the side. He won't start another project. He won't forget about you. He's going to finish his good work that he began in you. And that is very good news, right? So Paul has expressed his thankfulness for them, his joy for them. He's provided this assurance for the Philippians. The third major thing we're going to see in this Thanksgiving is Paul's justification for his feelings towards the Philippians. Paul's justification for his feelings towards the Philippians. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
It's almost like Paul was able to sense here that his thanksgiving can appear a little bit high, just a little bit lofty to the Philippians. It's almost like he can expect the Philippians saying to him, Paul, you're saying some really nice things here. What are they giving you in prison? Right? Like you're saying these things come a little bit too nice here. Paul just confirms what he said previously by, by justifying here. He says, I know I'm saying good things to you. I know I am. It's okay. More than okay. It's right for me to say these things. You're precious to me. But I also know that you're believers in the gospel. And I know that you've received the grace of God. I know that you're working to share this grace with others. Because you're supporting me in my imprisonment. Right? And because you're supporting my defense and confirmation of the gospel. I don't know about you, but whenever someone becomes imprisoned for the gospel, my, my first thought is not, I need to go to him and support him. That's not my first thought. My, my first thought is, how can I distance myself from this person so that I don't get jailed, right? That's our first thought as human beings. This wasn't the case for the Philippians. That's how Paul can be confident about them. In Fisherville, I believe that it is justified for me to say the good things that I've said about you this evening. Because you have evidence to me that you are partakers of grace in the gospel of Jesus. And you've supported my ministry efforts here in Louisville. And you've continued to support them in Cleveland. So we've seen Paul's thankfulness. We've seen his joy. We've seen his assurance. And we've seen his justification. Now we're going to see Paul's honesty about his feelings towards the Philippians. Verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And really, this just seems like a natural response to the Philippians, does it not? It just seems natural. I mean, if a church causes you to be thankful whenever you think of them, if a church causes you to be joyful whenever you pray for them, if a church continually partners with you in ministry, even whenever you are imprisoned by the biggest and baddest people in the world, right? You love those people, right? You yearn for those people. It's like, God, give me some more of them, right? God, I've got the Corinthians. Please, give me more Philippians, right? God, I've got Galatians. Please, give me more Philippians, right? And that's the kind of attitude that we can see here. It's a natural response. There's also a little bit of humor here that Paul says that God is his witness in this statement. It's like he's saying, I'm not lying. Trust me, the big guy upstairs, he's my witness, he knows everything about my heart, so if I'm lying to you, he'll definitely call me out on it, right? I'm not lying. I am genuinely feeling these things for you. Indeed, there is no stronger witness to call upon than God. So Paul yearns for Philippians, but he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if this is the same type of affection that Christ has for his people, or if it's the affection that comes through Jesus Christ. But either way, the point is the same. This is the strongest kind of affection that you could have for someone. The affection of Christ Jesus? Yes, that's the strongest possible affection that you could have for someone. And Fisherville, Cease and I feel the same affection for you. We love you something fierce. So we've seen here a wonderful thanksgiving from Paul, right? A wonderful, lovely thanksgiving from Paul to the Philippians. We've seen thankfulness. We've seen joy. We've seen assurance. We've seen justification. And we've seen honesty. And it has been wonderful. But it's also customary for Paul to provide a prayer after his thanksgivings. We're going to see that in Philippians as well. 
And there is a theme to this prayer, right? We're going to see that Paul has a prayer for an abounding, an accompanied, and an accomplishing love in the Philippians. And I'll say that again. We're going to see Paul's prayer for an abounding, an accompanied, and an accomplishing love in the Philippians. So verse 9 to the end here. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That is a wonderful prayer, right? Now, the first thing that we're going to see in this prayer is that, is that Paul wants their love to abound, right? To increase more and more into abundance, to an overflow. Now, Paul doesn't say here, I want you to become loving. He says, I want your pre-existing love to abound more and more. So this was a very loving congregation, the Philippians. In Fisherville, you are a very loving congr- congregation. Right? We came here with a pre-existing love seen amongst you. I want to see that love increase. I want to hear about your love in newspapers, if that is possible. <laughs> and Cecil and I felt this love from you from our first day. We still feel it now. Now, love can have different senses in the scriptures. Sometimes it's affections. Most of the time, I think it's referring to actions. I think that's what's going on right here. I think the love here refers to acts of love, just like it does in Corinthian letters. And you guys also are known for your acts of love here. You are a very loving congregation, especially whenever it comes to caring for others' physical needs. You're very gifted at it. All right, and I just ask and I pray that you would labor to increase this love more and more and more. All right, so the first thing we see is that Paul wants them to grow in love. The second thing we're going to see here is that Paul doesn't want this love to be alone. He wants knowledge and discernment to accompany this love. And this is a very good message for a culture, is it not? Because we have a culture that seems to believe that love is just a feeling, right? It's a feeling that we have to act upon, right? We can't understand it. We can't control it. We just feel it, and we have to act upon it. Because if we don't act upon it, we're only going to cause harm to ourselves, right? We're only going to cause harm or injury to ourselves. But Paul says here, no. No. Love needs the life of the mind. Love must gather facts. Love must act wisely in accordance with those facts. And I can give an example, all right? Whenever love needs knowledge and discernment. Not only in marriage, um, here's, here's a more of a social application of it. Every time there is an international crisis, like let's say an earthquake or a tsunami, America is known for bringing aid and relief, right? That's an act of love. That's a very good thing, right? It's a very good thing to meet someone's needs. However, we tend to have the problem of staying a little bit too long, providing too much aid and relief, so that locals no longer try to take care of themselves or even can't take care of themselves if they want to. An example is actually found in Haiti, where local farmers can't actually grow and produce their own crops because America sends them so much for food for free that they can't compete. Like, you can't compete with free, right? So we want to be loving. We want to solve a short-term problem. But we end up causing a long-term problem because we lack the facts and we don't act with discernment, right? So we're creating a long-term problem instead of solving a short-term problem. So that's just an example of whenever your love that is genuine, that is heartfelt, that has the right intentions, needs knowledge, and needs 
discernment, right? So we've seen that love needs to abound more than more. We've seen that love needs to be accompanied by love. <laughs> love needs to be accompanied by knowledge and discretion, discernment. The third thing we're going to see here is that the reason Paul desires an abounding and accompanied love is so that they might be able to approve what is excellent. They need to approve what is excellent. And this is left a little bit vague for the Philippians. The truth is the application of that can be really contingent upon the congregation as long as you have a right understanding of what excellent is, right? It's something that is high, something that is good, something that is godly, something that is right, right? So I have a question for you here at Philippians, and I don't know what the answer is. I'm going to trust that God will provide it in time. What is something excellent that you are struggling to approve right now as a congregation? What is something excellent that you are struggling to approve right now as a congregation? And is it because you don't have the knowledge and the discretion, or discernment, I'm sorry, that you need? Now, something else I can tell you here is that this theology of approving things, approving only excellent things, is very countercultural. Right? We live in a culture that wants to prove everything, right? Everything needs to be approved. Unless what is approved harms another or offends another. But even then, we're not very consistent or correct about what is actually harmful and what is actually offensive. And again, Paul says, no. No. Not everything should be approved. There are some things that cannot be approved. And some things that should be approved are not yet approved. What is excellent should be approved. So again, I ask, what is something excellent that you are struggling to approve? Is it because you lack the knowledge and discernment that you need to make the loving decision. So we've seen that love needs to abound. We've seen that love needs to be accompanied. right? And we've seen the reason for this prayer, so that they might approve what is excellent. The first thing we're going to see are the results right, of this kind of love, this abounding, accompanied love. First, it results in purity and blamelessness in the believer. This, no doubt, refers to behavior that is not characterized by wrongdoing, but instead is characterized by right doing. This will be finally realized, finally made real in the believer at the return of Christ. In the meantime, it grows more and more. Second, we're going to see that it results in a feeling of the fruit of righteousness. So righteousness results in right actions, and believers are filled with this kind of righteousness. And it's the righteousness, obviously, that is received through faith in the person and work of Jesus the Christ. Third, it results in glory and praise being given to God. So God is worshipped when love abounds, when it is accompanied by knowledge and discretion. So these are many good results of having an abounding and accompanied love in Christ Jesus. And Fisherville, I pray this would characterize your church. Strive to increase your love. Strive to increase your knowledge. Strive to increase your discernment in Christ Jesus, and there will be many blessings to you, but more importantly, there will be much praise and glory given to God. So allow me to bring the sermon to a close. Fisherville, thank you. Thank you for being a gospel partner. Um, thank you for ordaining me today to pastoral ministry. I only ask that you continue to partner with us by praying for a job. And Fisherville, know that I am praying for you. I pray that your love would abound more and more. And I pray that your love would be accompanied with knowledge and discernment. And I pray 
that your love might accomplish much for the good of Fisherville, for the good of Louisville, for the good of Kentucky, for the good of America, for the good of the whole world. I pray that your love would accomplish much for the glory of God. And then let me conclude this with with prayer for you guys. Okay. God, thank you for the church at Fisherville. God, they have been such a blessing to Cisa and me for these two years. Um, It would be a joy to stay here, yeah, just a little bit longer. But you call us elsewhere. I pray for this church. They are such a great church. They are they are gifted with so much grace. I pray, Lord, that this loving church would become even more loving. I pray this church would add more knowledge and more discernment to their love. And I pray that their love would accomplish much for their city, for their nation, and for the world. For your glory, God. Please bring this about. In Jesus' name, amen.